0: Good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 7. We are going to be continuing. Uh, I was out of the pulpit for the last few weeks as uh, Hannah was having our fourth child, and, but I'm looking forward to being back here and sharing with you this morning. Now, this next week, there's already, I can already tell that something's different about our church, not just the paint, but that we're missing some people, that some people are traveling. uh, A lot of the college students are gone because what's happening this next week? Thanksgiving. Now, there's lots of things about Thanksgiving that I love. I love the food. I love the football games. I love that deer season starts the next day. There's a lot of things that I really like about it, and I think that you could come up with a pretty good list of the things that you enjoy about Thanksgiving. But one of the things that is usually on the list of things that people don't like about Thanksgiving, and I have to be careful how I say this because um, the people I'm spending Thanksgiving are here with, but one of the things that people don't like about Thanksgiving is is all of the debating. When the polarizing topics come up after the meal, people sit down, and you know there's that person that's going to be in attendance that you just pretty much disagree with them on everything. But they're family, so you have to put up with them. But you have this polarizing element, and it's the tension, and we hate it. I don't know about you, but it just feels like As time has gone on, maybe I'm just getting older, but the world around me just feels more and more polarizing. More and more divisive that you are either on this side or on that side. You are either for me or you are against me. You are either an ally or an enemy. You either agree with me and therefore love me or you disagree with me and therefore must hate me. You are either an intelligent, well-researched individual, or you're an idiot and a menace to society. Those are the kind of things, right, that we just start seeing that this polarizing element. And what's so difficult about all of those topics, and as you talk to people, it's, it's amazing how you can have people look at the same issue and be on totally different sides of the issue. The reason is because of where they see their source of truth. What is the source of truth? How do they, what is the lens through which they see truth that allows them to reach the conclusions that they do? Now, if you're thinking that this morning we're going to be talking about pandemic, vaccinations, um, politics, all of those things, we're not. The reality is that many of those things are very tricky and it's it's hard to know what source to go to. But the passage that we're looking at this morning has a very polarizing issue. In fact, you cannot find in all of humanity, in all of human history, a more polarizing issue than the one we are looking at this morning. Because when it comes to this issue, there are only... Two sides. There is not a, well, I see your point and your point. No, this is the polarizing issue of humanity. Last week we had Mike Conroy uh, speaking here and he talked about insiders and outsiders. That there are those who are in Christ and out of Christ. Those are the only two categories. There aren't those who are, well, they're somewhat in Christ. They, they've got a foot in Christ. They're, they're good people, so they're pseudo-Christians. That doesn't exist. So how do you have, when it comes to something like Christ, who is not subjective, it's not a matter of opinion, how do you have people on total opposites of the issue? What we're going to look at this morning is it all depends on your source of truth, how do you judge what is true? The main idea, the big idea we're going to be using this morning is that worldly judgment leads to error and death, but godly judgment leads to truth and life. Worldly judgment leads to error and death, but godly judgment leads to truth and life. That it matters what lens you see things through. And that if you use the wrong lens, you will get this wrong. And the result is error and death. But if you see this the way that God shows us, then the result is truth and life. Now, we already heard the passage read earlier. You know that it's a long passage, and so we are going to get moving on this. At the very beginning, we just have a bit of the setting, of the transition. Looking at verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So after this, what we just saw is that Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus walked on water. Jesus told them that he was the bread of life. It was through him that life was found. And after sharing all of those things, we saw that he was rejected by many. In verse 66 of chapter 6, we saw that many of his disciples left him. And it says here, though, that Jesus continues to go about in Galilee. He's staying in, in a specific area. Why? Why is he doing that? Well, it says because he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If you recall, a couple weeks back, or or months back, we were in John 5. And in John 5, Jesus healed the invalid. But he did something that was a little wrong, according to the Jews. What day did he heal the invalid? Sabbath. They say, whoa, whoa, you can't do this. Jesus was showing that he was the cure. He was the solution But the Jews are looking that he's breaking the Sabbath and saying, no, you're the cause for our problems. You're the curse. And so what did they think? What was their solution to fix the problem of Jesus? Let's kill him. Verse 18 of chapter 5 says, and so for this reason, they were seeking to kill Jesus. Because Jesus was presenting himself as I am am God. If you remember, we went through that whole uh, trial motif where Jesus was on trial and saying, no, I'm not. I am God. I'm your cure. You need me. But the Jews are going after him and they are seeking to kill him. It then says that the, now the Jew, Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, for us, that's not something that we don't celebrate, the Jewish uh, Feast of Booths. So it, for most of us, including myself, I was like, okay, wh- which feast is this? I, I was having a hard time remembering this. So here's, here's a couple things for us to know. First of all, from the last chapter to this, past, this chapter, there's about six months of time. Because the previous one happened right around Passover, and that's in the spring. And the Jewish Feast of Booths is in the fall. Now, this is one of the cool things that just God does sometimes. The easiest way to think about the Jewish Feast of Booths is just to think about Thanksgiving. It's very similar to our own Thanksgiving. It happens in the fall after the harvest, after the harvest of grapes and olives, and people offer Thanksgiving to God for the harvest that they have gotten. Very similar to Thanksgiving. The other similarity, though, is that it's in remembrance. It's praising God for how God provided for their ancestors. So for us, we a lot of us celebrate Thanksgiving for how the people on the Mayflower were sustained and God provided for them. Well, for the Jews, they're looking back to when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, and all of this is in Leviticus 23, that, that God told them to celebrate God's provision where he had them living in tents in the wilderness, that he sustained them. There was even an element of theatrics, just like we'll see a lot of people dressing up as pilgrims and doing things like that in schools. For the Jews, what they would do is that they would literally build these little tents or little huts in on the roof or maybe in a courtyard, and they would live in those for the week, remembering what God had done. During the week, um, the priests would draw water at different times, and pour the water out to remember how God had provided water when Moses uh, spoke to the rock and struck the rock. They would do that to remember, and that's really going to come in next week when we continue with this passage. They They would light lamps to remember how God was a pillar of fire that directed them. All of these things to remember and be grateful for what God has done. So that's kind of the setting that we're having, that this is basically the Jewish time of thanksgiving. But as we go through, we're going to see different groups of people who are not responding according to who Jesus is. That they are in error. And as we go through each one of them, we're going to see a different element of worldly wisdom, worldly judgment. It's not an exhaustive list, but it helps us to see how that worldly judgment leads to error and death. So the first one I want to look at is the brothers. Look at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, "Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." Now there's there's some difficult things in this paragraph. First thing though is that these are Jesus' actual brothers. Not full brothers, they're half-brothers, so these would be children of Mary and Joseph, whereas Jesus is the son of God and Mary. But these are Jesus' brothers, and they often, at different times, were with Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 2, Mary and the brothers went to the wedding at Cana. There's other parts in the Synoptic Gospels that talk about Jesus' brothers. But they come to Jesus, and and they, they give him a challenge. They challenge him to do something. Jesus has already said that he's staying in Galilee because he doesn't want to go because the the Jews are seeking to kill him. We're going to see later in this passage it's not because Jesus is scared. It's not because Jesus is hiding and he doesn't know. No, in fact, what Jesus is doing is following God's timing. But the brothers say, hey, leave here. Let other people see your works that you are doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now it might be hard for us to understand the full motivation of what the brothers here are doing. we, We really don't know with what it's given exactly what they're hoping to accomplish. It might be that they're trying to have him get back some momentum Remember back in the last chapter, many disciples left Jesus. And, and so Jesus had this thriving ministry. And, and maybe the brothers are like, hey, you, you need to go back into the public. You need to get out of the backwoods of Galilee. Let's go to the capital. Let, let's get some momentum going. Maybe, though, they're just trying to set him straight. Maybe they really think that there's no way that Jesus will ever be the Messiah. And so if maybe if if he's embarrassed enough by the Jewish leaders, if he's embarrassed enough by all the people that are seeking, uh, that don't agree with him, maybe then Jesus will, will, will stop this. In Mark 3, 21, it says that Jesus' family went out to seize him, saying he was out of his mind. Maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe they're trying to force him to become the Messiah. Hey, Jesus, you, you need to do something in order to become this. Much like the crowd in the last chapter tried to force Jesus to be king. Because they're looking at Jesus and they're, they're, he's not quite there. And so, hey, Jesus, you, you need to ramp this up. It's even possible, though, this would be the worst of them, that they are trying to see him killed out of jealousy. 1 John 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If Cain's willing to, 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 to do that, imagine the difference between Jesus, growing up with Jesus and seeing someone who every single day was righteous. Whatever the motivation, whatever they're trying to do, though, we know that they're not doing it in the right way because of what verse 5 says. For not even his brothers believed in him. The reason that they're telling Jesus to do these things is because they do not believe in him. So what wisdom, what worldly judgment are they using? Jesus. You need to follow a worldly mission. Jesus, what you're doing isn't the right way to do this. If you really want to prove that you're the Messiah, you need to do it the way we are telling you to do it. And because Jesus is not doing it their way, according to their view, their judgment is that Jesus is not who he says he is for not even his brothers believed in him. They don't get it. They are in error. They have judged Jesus wrongly. Now, now I just want to give a quick side warning here. Do not think that proximity to the gospel can save you. If the brothers of Jesus were considered to be of the world and unbelievers people who had grown up with Jesus, people who had sat under his teaching, people who had interacted with him, if that proximity wasn't enough to save them, don't think that your proximity to the gospel, just attending church, just by doing right things, by being children of believers, is enough to save you. It's not. Because they stand condemned. Not even his brothers believed in him. Now, here's, here's a question for us as we're going through this. Why does John include so many examples of people who don't believe? If you were trying to convince someone of something, do you think it's a good strategy to tell you, say, all the people who disagree with what you're saying? If the goal is just to tell people who Jesus is, why would John include all of these things? It's like if I, were, if I saw something amazing and I come up to you and I say, oh, check out this thing that I saw. No one else believes me that I saw it. Other people were there. They didn't believe it, but I think it really happened. I'm not helping my case. What's John doing? Why is John adding all of these other people? Because while John's goal is that we would know who Jesus is, that's only part of the mission. His true mission is that we would respond rightly to that truth. And in showing other people who don't respond, he shows how important it is for us to get this right. Because the result of getting this wrong is error and death. And so when John goes through all of these people who go about this the wrong way, what John is doing is therefore highlighting the right way, the only way. When G- He's going to say later, I am the only w- way, the truth, and the life. John, by showing these things that people are thinking, well, let's use this worldly judgment to determine you can't. Worldly judgment will always lead to error. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to truth. And so John highlights these other ways that get it wrong so that we can see how to get it right. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Worldly judgment leads to error and death, but godly judgment leads to truth and life. But Jesus' brothers are in error. They are judging Jesus with worldly judgment, with a worldly mission, but Jesus sets them straight. Look what he says in verse sec, uh, in 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify, testify about it that its works are evil." He says, my time has not yet come. It reminds us of when he was talking to Mary, when he said, my hour has not yet come. One of the things that we see about Christ's ministry is that it is inevitable. There is nothing that will stop what Christ is setting out to do. He is doing things according to God's plan. And so over and over there will be times where he says, my time has not yet come. The hour is not yet here because he's looking to do things according to God's time and he is not relinquishing God's divine appointed ministry and mission for an earthly one. So the brothers are saying, no, Jesus, you have to do it this way. And Jesus is saying, no, my time is not yet come. I am doing this God's way. But then he says, but your time is always here. Now in one sense, he's talking about the time to go up to the feast. My time, in a specific sense, is not time, it's not time yet for me to go up to this feast. But you can go anytime. There's an element here, though, of an indictment against them. One of the things that the Jewish people of that time really held strongly to was Ecclesiastes 3, that there is a time for everything. And so for Jesus to say, my time has not yet come, he's saying, yes, God has a specific time for me. But your time, you can go anytime. Does that mean that, they, that God does not have a time for them? No. But what he's saying to them is that you aren't doing things according to God's plan. You're doing things according to your own plan. You're doing things according to your own time. We can see that because of what he says next to them. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What is Jesus showing them? You are not in me. You are not linked with me. You might think that you that we are all part of this mission together and you're trying to set me up for success. We're not part of the same mission. The world cannot hate you. Why can the world not hate them? Because they are of the world. John 15 19 says this if you were of the world. The world would love you as its own. And unfortunately, Jesus' brothers are of the world. And so they cannot be hated of the world. But the world hates Jesus because he testifies about it that its works are evil. Notice the repetition of words between what Jesus is saying versus what his brother said. Jesus, go show the world your works. Go do that. And Jesus says, the world hates me because I show them their works. He flips it around. The world will never follow me. Your mission is for the world to love me. The world can't love me. One of the fascinating things here in these last chapters of John is how many times there's temptations given to Jesus that follow the same temptations that Satan did to Jesus. One of the things that Satan said is, hey, miraculously make these stones into bread. The crowds in the last chapter said, Jesus, miraculously give us more bread. The crowds tried to make Jesus king. What did, you, uh, what did, what did uh, uh, Satan do? He said, all of these people can worship you, make you king. The last thing that Satan did, he took him to Jerusalem and said, jump off of this. Do a magnificent work where the angels will stop you from being hurt. And what did the the brothers say? Go to Jerusalem. Do magnificent works. All of these things showing them that they are not truly following Jesus. They have a worldly mission, but Jesus is showing them, I have a divine appointment. So he says to them, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Just a quick application for us here. How often do we want to tell God how to accomplish his plan? How often do we go and say, God, Jesus, this is how, what you need to do. This is the way. This is how you show yourself to be God in my life. If you just do this, then I'll believe you. Friends, Jesus does not need to prove himself. He has already given enough. The only thing that, Jesus, that we need is for us to be changed. Jesus not, does not need to become the Savior. He already is the Savior. What we need is to become redeemed. We need to be changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not need to become things. And so when we go and tell God, God, you need to do these things, then we're misunderstanding this. We're putting God's mission, God's divine appointed mission, and we're bringing it down and judging it with worldly missions. But worldly judgment leads to error and death. But God's judgment leads to truth and life. Let's move on. But after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. We see in this paragraph that Jesus does not act according to the brother's plan. He does not go announcing himself to the world. This is not the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He goes in private. It's not yet time to reveal himself. We see that the Jews are, in fact, searching for Jesus. It's been a long time since he did that miracle, and yet they are still seeking for him. And Jesus knows that. They're doing it because they are looking to kill him. And in verse 12, we see the polarizing effect Jesus has. The people are muttering. They are debating who Jesus is. And they are judging him according to worldly morality. Now, it might seem reasonable to judge him according to morality. Jesus should be someone moral, but there's a problem. They aren't judging him according to divine or godly morality. They aren't judging him according to God's standard. They're judging him according to their own standard, to their own ideas of results. So how how do we know that? Because of the result of their judgment. Some say he is a good man, but others are calling him a liar. No, he is leading the people astray. This demonstrates that they are not judging according to godly judgment, but worldly judgment, using worldly morality. How do we know that? Because is it ever possible for someone to evaluate Christ with godly judgment and conclude anything other than his deity and perfection? Is it ever possible to use godly judgment and look to Jesus and conclude that Jesus is a liar and leading people astray? No. The only way that they can reach that result, to reach that conclusion, is if they are using a different measure, if they are using a worldly morality in order to judge Jesus. The irony, though, is that the people are questioning whether or not Jesus is a liar, and often when we read this passage, that's the biggest question that we have. Because if we are... Some of you might have already thought this while we're reading this. Wait a second. Jesus just told his brothers he's not going up with them. And now he did go up with them. Is Jesus a liar? That's the question that some of us ask that. And the irony of Jesus demonstrating here that these people are wrong because they're judging him wrongly. Now this is a difficult element to understand because... Part of it is is an issue of of translation, of understanding um, different things that the Greek uses in, in tenses of past, present, or continuing. The reality is what Jesus said is he's not going. When he said he's not going, that did not mean he was never going. He told them, I'm not going with you. Why did Jesus do that? Because he was not going to submit God's mission, God's plan, to their mission. We can be confident that Christ is not lying. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus went up according to the time when God said it was time to go up. How often, though, do we question God's morality? How often do we question, is God actually a good god is god a just god can god be loving if he does a b or c we question god's morality but the only times we would ever question god's morality is if we are judging god according to our own view of morality Because when we judge God according to godly judgment, according to divine morality, then the only resulting response is that God is just, He is perfect, He is holy. Let's move on now to verse 14. So it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. While Jesus may have gone up in private, it didn't stop him from teaching. And we know that Jesus' teaching was powerful. Jesus is in the temple and the Jews don't understand how this is possible. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now for us to understand what they are saying here, we need to understand the context a little bit more. When they say, they, when they say this, when they are asking how is this man uh, doing this, how is he doing this, this isn't them being in awe and they're like, wow, this is is amazing look at this guy wow this is so incredible no in fact they're questioning they're looking and they're doubting what's happening part of why this is happening and we're going to see this both because of other passages and the way that jesus responds to them is that jesus is teaching in a different way than the world jesus is teaching in a different tradition than the other rabbis One of the things that rabbis would do is every time that they were teaching, they would cite other human sources. So they would be talking and they say, and you will hear what so-and-so said, this former rabbi, as I was trained by them, and this is what they taught. Um, Even if you think of Paul who said that he was trained under an order, that's the idea. That you would be taught by a person and you would cite all of these sources. In Matthew 7, 28, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Because the scribes would base their authority on what others had said before, based off of the tradition, based off of other people. Now, please understand me. I am not saying that we should not listen to other people, that we should not study and know what people say. That is good. It is good to know theology. But does Jesus need to rely on those things? No. Jesus doesn't teach like them. There's clues of that in how Jesus teaches. There's times where Jesus says, You have heard it has been said... So this is what other people say, but I say to you, my authority. How many times, even in the Gospel of John, have we seen Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus is doing something different. He's not doing this. And, and the people, the Jews are looking and saying, wait a second, what's going on? He has no teaching He's not showing his sources. He's using this uh, this other knowledge, and they're judging him according to that. So what does Jesus say? How does he defend himself? He cites the greatest source. So Jesus answered, answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I have a greater source of knowledge. You are judging me according to other human sources? I have the greatest source. My teaching is from the one who sent me. My teaching is from the Father. Don't judge my words according to other humans. Don't judge my words according to the world. Judge my words according to the Father. But there's a problem. How do we know that Jesus isn't just making this all up? How do we know that Jesus truly is sharing the words of the Father? How do we know that he's sharing heavenly words? We've never been to heaven. Jesus gives us the lens or test through which we can verify the truth of what he says. He says in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So, how does someone have the will to do God's will? This is the process. This is how we can accurately use godly judgment. If we want to do this, then this is the test. Well, the first thing that we need is this requires faith. Back in verse 28 of the last chapter, Jesus says, then they said, the people asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How do you do the will of God? How do you do that? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You need to have faith. But the other side of this is that it requires rebirth. Back in chapter 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In order for us to judge the words of Jesus, we must place our faith in Jesus. We must be reborn. The result is that then we can accurately judge the truth of Christ that he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Here's the problem, though, when, when, when we see that argument. It really feels like circular reasoning. Hey, if you want to judge me accurately... First, you have to place your faith in me and be reborn. Then you can accurately judge me. And if you have placed your faith in me and been reborn, of course you will say that I am Christ because you have been accurately reborn and you've placed your faith in me. And then it feels the circular element. And people have a problem with that. But this is reality. See, the other side of the argument is this that there is some way for me to be outside of Christ and find some firm foundation in which I can evaluate the truth of Christ. That on my own, outside of Christ, I can find a way to accurately assess who Christ is. You can't. You can't be tossed to and fro by the words of doctrine, as Ephesians 4 tells us. You can't be in a, a storm And then think, in this storm where there is no sure footing, I will find a foothold in order to evaluate who Christ is. The only foundation from which we can evaluate Christ is Christ. In the Bible, we can see this illustrated in in a story of Peter. Uh, The last passage we were in, where Jesus walked on water... It's not shared in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels, that's the time that Peter walks on water. And when Peter is looking at God, when he's using godly judgment, what is the water? It's a firm foundation. When he is looking according to how Christ tells him to look, he can walk. He can judge who Christ is. He knows that Christ is true because of what is happening. But as soon as he looks away and looks with a worldly vision and looks at all of these things with a worldly knowledge, what happens? He sinks. You can't evaluate Christ accurately outside of Christ. That is why we must place our faith in him. That is why we must be reborn. Another example of this is only those who can see can accurately reflect on what sight is. If someone has never seen, they can't conceptualize, conceptualize, they cannot evaluate sight. But Jesus gives another test. It links back to what the brothers challenge Jesus with. This is how we evaluate those who claim to teach the word of God. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus' brothers wanted him to seek his own glory. But if Jesus had done that, then he would have proven that his words were not true. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus seeks the glory of God. Do we judge Christ according to our limited knowledge? Do we put limits on what God can do? Who taught you those things? How can we know? We need to judge christ according to scripture according to what the bible reveals it is the only thing that shows who christ is let's move on then to verse 19 has not moses given you the law yet none of you keeps the law why do you seek to kill me The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by its appearances, but judge with right judgment." What is happening here? Why do people, are people judging Jesus? What standard are they using now? They're using worldly religion. They're using the laws of men. They have the law of God. Has not Moses given you the law, the law that God gave to Moses, yet none of you keeps that law? They don't keep the law of Moses. And yet they're trying to hold Jesus accountable to something that's not even in the law. They're judging Jesus according to their own law. They've created their own thing. And what has that led to? Error and death. They are seeking to kill Jesus. And Jesus is referring again back to the miracle that he did where he uh, uh, healed the paralytic man. But Jesus is showing you're inconsistent. You've created your own law. Why? Because he talks about the circumcision. Hey, this is part of the law, and you guys have decided, okay, it's okay to break the law on the Sabbath in order to keep the law of circumcision. And he does this argument from lesser to greater. If you're willing to to do this to one part of the body in order to make this person whole and holy, why should I not make a whole man complete? You're inconsistent. You've created. You're judging me according to your own laws. You don't keep the law of Moses. Here's the easiest way for us to see that they don't keep the law of Moses. What are they seeking to do to Jesus? Kill him. They're seeking to murder an innocent man. They are breaking the law of Moses. So Jesus challenges them. Do not judge by appearances. Do not judge by the world's standard. Do not judge by worldly religion, but judge with right judgment. What is right judgment? It's godly judgment. It's the judgment of how God sees Christ. Don't do what you're doing that's going to lead to error and death but godly judgment leads to truth and life next week we're going to see that Jesus says all you are who are thirsty come to me so and you will become out of you will come streams of living water if you see me the way god sees me if you judge me the way that god judges me, then you will have, you will receive truth and life. But when you do it according to the world, it's error and judgment. Again, we do this so often that we exchange the laws of God for the laws of man and we judge God accordingly. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus gives us the true Sabbath rest. Jesus is the true circumcision, the circumcision of our hearts. How often do we create our own religion, though? Either through legalism or relativism. We must submit to God's law. Do not create your own set of rules. There is nothing we can do to improve what God has given For I come from him, and he sent me, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Right at the beginning it says, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Just a little bit ago they said, who's seeking to kill you? Sounds like they knew that they were trying to kill him. But look what it says. Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. The irony here is if you look back at verse 13, it says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now out of this whole passage, who should be the person most afraid? Jesus. But I told you earlier, Jesus is not neglecting to go up. He's not staying in Galilee because he's afraid. Because the person who should truly be afraid is the person that's looking to die. The people that they're trying to kill and yet Jesus is here speaking openly whereas none of the other people, none of the Jews are speaking openly. Because Jesus is doing things according to God's timing. But the problem here is that they are judging Jesus according to worldly assumptions. Look at all the things that they say we know or we don't know. Look at all the things that they assume. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is Christ? We, but we know where this man comes from, and no one will know where he comes from. But then Jesus shows, you don't know what you think you know. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on, of my own accord. You, you don't actually really know where I've come from. You think I've, I've come from Bethlehem, or you think I've come from, from Galilee, or Nazareth, but I come from the Father, you do, and you do not know him. Jesus shows them that when they judge him according to the worldly assumptions, they're going to get this wrong. They will be in error. But if they judge him according to what God says, then they will have truth. Again, how often do we subject God to our own assumptions? We believe in him according to what, not to what he has revealed, but we believe in him according to what we might assume. Don't do that. Our assumptions, our worldly assumptions will always lead to error and death. Believe in God according to what he has revealed. But thankfully at verse 31, we we finish up with this last part. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, has Jesus changed in this passage? Has Jesus done something now that they're like, oh, well, Jesus, we were just waiting for you to show that. No, Jesus has been the same the entire time. What has happened? These people have been transformed. They've come to the point where they've said, it is enough. Friends, that's that's where you need to come to if you do not believe in Christ Jesus is not someone that needs to change in order for you to believe in him you need to change in order to place your faith in him Jesus fixes the problem of sin we are separated from God but Jesus came to fix that problem it is only through Jesus that it can be fixed place your faith in him Repent from what your worldly beliefs. Judge him according to godly judgment. But a question for all of us is, is in this polarizing world, what is your source of absolute truth? How often are you going back to worldly judgment? How often do you make decisions according to the world's standards, to world's wisdom? Use Godly judgment. The judgment that God reveals. What is your foundation? Are you expecting to be floating and sinking in the sea of uncertainty of the world's wisdom and thinking that in that you're going to be able to find something in order to evaluate the world? You can't. Your foundation must be Christ. It must be God's word. Worldly judgment leads to error and death, but godly judgment leads to truth and life.